0: All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Eric Trexler from the Mass Research Review. Uh, we are here with yet another episode of Mass Office Hours, and this is a very special episode, the most special of all so far. We're on episode 11 here, and we, for the first time, have a special guest. Now, of course, I'm here with Lauren Colenso semple future Dr. Lauren Colenzo-Semple. Uh, but our guest today uh, needs no introduction. We are joined by Brad Schoenfeld. Uh, you might Uh, You might have seen Dr. Brad Schoenfeld's name on just about any paper related to hypertrophy. He has published hundreds of papers related to resistance training, hypertrophy, and a variety of related topics. He is a professor of exercise science at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York, and there's some history among the group. Uh, Lauren, if I'm not mistaken, your first kind of venture into exercise research was in Brad's lab. Is that right?
1: That's right. That was 2015 and 2016.
0: All right. And and you're both on speaking terms still. So that that must have gone reasonably well or you made up since then. So that's good. Uh, and and I have don't also, think I
1: screwed it up too badly.
0: Yeah. Great. And I've also collaborated with Brad on some research, uh, some really cool stuff related to bodybuilders. Uh, so, Brad, it is a huge, huge honor. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure, guys. And uh, as I've said to you beforehand that I'm just a, uh, Real fan of Mass, so you guys do a terrific job and happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much. And there would be no Mass without people like you. We need people doing research so that we can review research. And uh, your papers have been all over the Mass Research Review in the almost seven years that we've been doing it. So thank you for doing all the hard stuff so we can do the easy stuff uh, after the fact. Um, Now... We have a ton of questions for you. Clearly, your audience uh, was peppering the uh, submission portal with a lot of good questions, so we will get to those. We will be talking all things hypertrophy tonight, but before we do that, we have to uh, do a little bit of business here, so um, we are uh, obligated to announce that today we kicked off the mass Black Friday sale. So, if you are a Brad Schoenfeld super fan, and you're just coming along, and this is your first time watching this, uh, we do the mass research review we publish it every month the the first of the month and it is essentially like a website slash fitness magazine i suppose it's a monthly um research review where we look at the most interesting and most useful re- uh studies that have happened in, in the past month looking at stuff like training studies uh resistance training research nutrition research anything loosely related to fitness sometimes we do psychology and behavior change stuff everything that you would use as a lifter, or as a fitness enthusiast, or as a coach. So we review those studies, uh, we let you know what they mean, what you can do with them, what you maybe shouldn't do with them in terms of applying the findings, and we try to make everything super practical so that you can take it right from the pages of the scientific journal and put it right into your training uh, as long as it's in line with your goal. So we try to contextualize it and kind of individualize it and let you know how you would use it on a person-by-person basis. So. Uh, right now the prices for the mass research review Uh, we do monthly yearly and lifetime subscriptions all three options are discounted i think they're about 30 percent lower than normal and these are the lowest prices that we ever do so if you're interested check out massresearchreview.com and uh yeah take a look at it see if you like it uh so uh the sale ends at midnight eastern time on wednesday november 29th so there's a nice wide window to get in there and take advantage of the sale um yeah so we hope you like it and the sale like i said has already started so if you want to go in and scoop up a super discounted uh subscription it's it's wide open if you like the show but not enough to subscribe to mass that's okay but you can still like rate and review uh and subscribe wherever you do podcasts or videos like this you could also tell a friend let them know that we do this it's free it's every wednesday night we enjoy doing it. And some people, a few people say that it's helpful. Uh, and then finally, if you want to support Brad, uh, you could definitely check out his textbook, uh, the science and development of muscle hypertrophy. Is that the, the correct title there? Yeah. Science and development. Yeah. Um, I have a copy of it. I was just looking over at my, uh, I was going off the outline here, but I know I have a copy of that in the office here. Uh, so it's a fantastic textbook. I crack it open from time to time and that's a very sincere compliment. Uh, I don't crack open many of my textbooks these days, but that's one that's always on the top of the stack. There, uh, you could also check out the master's program in human performance over at Lehman College. Uh, and Brad, you're uh, you're you're like the you're the director of, of that program, correct?
2: Correct. Yeah.
0: yeah. Awesome. Um, are are you guys still taking applications for next year? Is that window closed?
2: Uh, no, till December fifteenth of this year of two thousand twenty three, and then it's a rolling admissions process. So if you're after December 15th, it goes to the fall semester.
0: Awesome. Very cool. So yeah. Um, So if you are a fitness enthusiast and you say, I love the science stuff, but I don't know where to study. And that's actually a question that I get all the time. I get people on Instagram in the DM saying, hey, where should I go and learn how to do fitness research and and pursue a graduate degree? Uh, Brad obviously has my absolute highest recommendation. If you're looking for a degree program, Uh, Lauren, you were in the lab. Thumbs up, thumbs down. No Big pressure. thumbs
1: up. And I, I'll say, when I was there, there was no master's program. So, had there been a master's program, I certainly would have stayed and done that with Brad.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And one last thing I'll mention here, and then we'll get to business uh, the real business of answering questions. Uh, a lot of folks that listen to this are personal trainers, and they have a variety of different certifications. Uh, If you need CEUs, it's November. A lot of those things are due December 31st. Get your CEUs in so you can keep your certifications. If you need them, there's a good chance that you could get them by subscribing to the Mass Research Review. We offer quizzes to our subscribers. You certainly don't have to take them, but they're available if you want to use them to satisfy your CEU requirements to maintain your certifications. We currently have CEU uh, credits that apply to the NSCA, the ACSM, ACE and NASM. Uh, So those are some of the biggest, most reputable certifying bodies in the fitness space in America. And uh, all four of those, we've got them covered. So if you want to learn more about our CEUs, uh, drop me a message. I can uh, direct you to more information. Okay. Enough of all the sales stuff. I I hate doing all that stuff, but it's, it's necessary. Now we got questions and we got Brad Schoenfeld here. And this is going to be an episode where I'm hardly going to say a thing. I'm going to let Brad be an expert and do expert things. And Lauren, please feel welcome to uh, to chime in because you are also an expert. I'm just kind of st- holding the steering wheel here, uh, keeping things moving. So, Brad, if you're ready for it, we've got a-, a first question here. Sure. Now, little anecdote. the I think probably the first paper that I ever read by the good Dr. Brad Schoenfeld was reviewing the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. I mean, that was a... An instant classic, probably what, like 2010-ish in JSCR? Correct. Yeah. You know, it's one of those papers that you remember the year two, which means you've gone back to it quite a few times. Uh, now, I know you've published an update since then, uh, but this question is all about uh, the mechanisms of hypertrophy and specific specifically the question is, how important is metabolic stress as a mechanism of hypertrophy? And, and they're basically asking if you have any updated perspectives about metabolic stress uh, since that you know 2010 paper most likely, and you know how does it rank when we talk about the other kind of three core mechanisms of hypertrophy?
2: It's a great question, and I'd start by saying that it's very difficult to study mechanisms of of anything pretty much in general, but certainly hypertrophy. The trying to piece together what causes growth, we we can measure growth, trying to then backtrack and say, well, what is causing that growth? There's a lot of confounding issues. So when you when you alter one mechanism, you often will alter and generally will alter another. And it just makes it very difficult to try to tease out what is involved. I think we can very clearly say that mechanical tension, I don't know how deep you want to get into this because mechanical tension I think is quite un- misunderstood as well in a lot of respects, but um, it, it is the driving force. You. You're not going to get, you'll get very minimal hypertrophy uh, regardless uh, uh, if you don't have mechanical tension. But the question then becomes, are are other factors involved? And if so, to what extent they're involved? And I I would say that I, my opinion is very equivocal at this point. Um, I I don't dismiss that there might be a role for metabolic stress and or muscle damage as well. But I'm also, if you ask me my confidence level that it does is a driver, I would say I'm not. Highly confident at all. My confidence is weak. Uh, you know, so, when we look at the strength of evidence, it exists on a continuum. So, how to say, I, certainly, I think there's people that dismiss it. And I think that's misguided because we don't have, and uh, there's an absence of evidence to dismiss it. And there certainly is some evidence showing that it may, may be a player. But on the other hand, there's evidence that it may not be a player. And, and the evidence that we have that it is a player. Is mostly inferred. It's it's certainly not direct evidence, so it's again weak evidence from on a strength of evidence continuum. Um, We do have uh, some evidence. First of all, through blood flow restriction training, I'll just give you some of these. That um, if you so these are people that have been casted, so they they can't use they can't contract their muscles, and simply uh, applying a, a tourniquet a restrictive implement to uh, promote blood flow restriction attenuates atrophy uh, and even slightly increases hypertrophy in people committed to bed rest. And there's been a couple of papers showing this. Now, that that's interesting, but does that mean that if you then combine that with resistance training, we don't care about that from a resistance training standpoint. The question is then, does that would that have an additive, a synergistic effect if you're doing it it's resistance training. We don't have evidence of that. There is some evidence that lactate is a uh, has anabolic effects. There's other evidence refuting that lactate has an effect. Uh, I collaborated on a an entire paper with Cody Horn and uh, Daniel Lawson uh, and Chris Van. So really good team, and we went through the evidence. And again, it's very equivocal. But I would also say, and this is something I think that's people often will focus on like lactate. There's many metabolites that are produced. So there was a recent paper showing that, I mean, dozens of, it was a correlation with the uh, hypertrophic outcomes with dozens of different metabolites. Correlation is not causation, so we can't certainly draw strong inferences from that, but it leaves open the possibility that they may be involved. So in, in short, I would say that uh, in my long-winded way, uh, say that? I, I don't know. I, I think that we can't dismiss it. Uh, I don't think that it, if you're asking me gun to my head, does it have major effects? No, but could that be a something that might uh, help, especially if you're a bodybuilder, uh, to let's say do some pump training, to focus on some metabolic stress type training? I can't dismiss it and I certainly don't see a downside to it. So then when you start looking from a practical standpoint, you can say, It's worth probably putting in some of that training, and at worst, you won't get much of an effect, but it's not going to hurt you.
0: And at best, you'll get a nice pump. And who who hates getting a good pump, right?
2: As Arnold says, well, you know what Arnold
0: says. (laughs) If you you know, then you definitely know. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, just to echo your sentiment, like, you know, my dissertation work was on nitric oxide boosters, and so the conventional wisdom since the day they hit the supplement market was oh, they help you grow muscle because they help you get a bigger pump and that cell swelling matters. And um, I've also, I've I've kind of scoured the literature trying to find evidence where we're saying, oh, definitely in the, the case of normal kind of unrestricted resistance training, a better pump is going to facilitate better gains. And it, it's very difficult to kind of draw that, that clear picture, um, but it's also difficult to refute it entirely. So yeah, even in my little window into this question, I also come up just saying, yeah, I, I don't really know, to be honest.
2: There was a recent paper uh, last year. It was published in Toronto blank. It was out of Japan. Throwing a blank on the author, uh, lead author. But anyway, they did show, they looked at an acute bout of cell swelling and correlated it to, I believe it was eight or 10-week resistance training program. And there was a correlation between the cell swelling effect and the hypertrophic outcome. Again, correlation is not causation. So we need to take that with serious grain of salt. But I would say again, that it at least it provides hypothesis. It's a hypothesis generating uh, study that I think gives at least some provokes thought that we may be able to get uh, some benefit from it. And again, without really any detriment that I can fathom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the next question here um, is another one that's, that's right in the sweet spot for you. Um, this is probably the probably the second area where I started really becoming familiar with your work back in the day. Um, and Lauren, I believe your lab has done some work on this as well. But someone wants to know, the, everyone wants to know, this question comes up all the time. I want to grow muscle. What should I do? Low reps, medium reps, high reps, or maybe a combination of all the above? What do you think, Brad?
2: Yeah. So this is an interesting topic and uh, I'll give a little anecdote. So I was When I was a young and -and up-and-coming exercise science student very long ago now, uh, we were always taught, and it was in the NSCA textbooks, that if you train below 65% uh, of your 1RM, basically it's glorified cardio. It's it's not going to recruit the highest threshold motor units, and you're going to get suboptimal muscle development. And uh, Lauren's mentor, Dr. Stu Phillips, I believe the year was 2012 or 13, um, and – Stu had uh, a study with one of his doctoral students showing that um, there was no difference between 80% 1RM and 30% 1RM, provided that the sets were taken to failure in hypertrophy of the quads. And to give the context to it, the study was carried out in untrained subjects doing just the leg extension. And in not one of my finer moments, Stu posted on Facebook about the study and saying, hey, we have proof of principle here. Uh, you shouldn't be worried about how heavy the weights are. And, uh, I went on, uh, I, I made a comment and I said, come on, stairway. I said, these are untrained subjects uh, just doing leg extensions. I said, they would get jacked from just doing cardio. They're noobs. And uh, I said, I'm going to carry out a study in trained subjects and you're going to see they're not going to be able, it, it's not going to um, uh, promote uh, a sufficient stimulus to generate Uh, adequate hypertrophy and and the heavier loads are going to prevail. So uh, long story short, six months later, I carried out that study, trained subjects, and we did it upper body, lower body, full body program. We looked at the uh, biceps, triceps, quads. Um, uh, One group did 10 reps. The other group did 30 reps, zero difference. (laughs) And and, uh, that's in hypertrophy. There was differences in strength as well as in Stu's study as well. Uh, But from a hypertrophy standpoint, uh, and it's been now, this is probably one of the most studied topics on any of the variables, if not the most. And I don't, there's not many topics that I have high confidence in giving recommendations on. This is one of them, that on a whole muscle level, uh, I would, I don't even think it's possible at this point with all the data that we have that just new study. You're not going to, first of all, you just don't see where all the data point to one thing. And then all of a sudden, you're going to get 20 new studies coming out showing the other. That just doesn't happen. Uh, and if you might get another study or two that shows the opposite, it's just not enough to turn the, turn the tide. So uh, with a high degree of confidence, I would say you can gain muscle across a very wide spectrum of loading ranges. I did collaborate on a paper with a group in Brazil uh, headed by uh, Dr. Licevicius uh, out of uh, the University of Sao Paulo we looked at 20%, 40%, 60%, and 80% 1RM. And 40, 60, and 80 had very similar hypertrophy, but the 20% 1RM had suboptimal hypertrophy. It still did promote hypertrophy. It was in untrained subjects again. So there might be a minimum threshold. Now, I would say this, the caveat to that, the 20% 1RM was something like 70 repetitions. And, oh. and it, might, it might just have been four where they just didn't come close to really Going towards failure, uh, you know, achieving a sufficient level of RIR. Um, but I mean, within a very wide range, up to forty reps. Now, I'd also say that if you're doing below five or so reps, it's a very inefficient way to uh, to grow muscle. Uh, my doctoral dissertation looked at a powerlifting versus a uh, bodybuilding type of routine on a volume equated basis. So, it was seven sets of three versus three sets of ten. Similar hypertrophy, but the Seven sets of three. The subjects were trashed. I mean, they were getting, they were having nagging injuries. They just felt like crap at the end of the workout. They all said they needed a, a break. So it's just not an effi- The volume load that you have to make up to get a sufficient duration, uh, time under tension of the session, uh, just doesn't make it a, in my opinion, an effective way to train. Now, there are some nuances. I am still. I'm skeptical of this because some of our research has refuted it, but I still hold out the possibility there may be a fiber type specific effect. There is some evidence in blood flow restriction training in particular with light loads that type 1 fibers are stressed to a greater degree with uh, lighter loads and perhaps uh, heavier loads stress the type 2 fibers. Uh, For the majority of people, I probably don't think it's going to be a meaningful effect but if you're a bodybuilder or someone that wants to top out your your gains, your hypertrophic potential, it may. So uh, we don't, in my opinion, do not have sufficient evidence at this time to refute or or you know give it credence. So I think that is an area that still needs some some research.
0: Yeah, yeah, that idea has always fascinated me. The idea that you should do a little bit of heavy loads to kind of target the type two, a little bit of lighter to target the type one. I w I won't say that I have really acted upon that very much. I I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that as well. Um, you know, based on some of the research, but of course it never hurts. And I think, um, you know, we've all trained folks, uh, for extended periods of time. Sometimes people just get really bored of, Oh, another, another meslo cycle of 10 to 12 reps. Awesome. Appreciate that. Sometimes it's just good for other reasons to mix things up a little bit, throw some heavier things into the mix. Um, You know, the thing I like the most about your answer, Brad, uh, is you shared an anecdote of where your research um, kind of challenged your intuition a little bit. And, you know, you expected that you were going to kind of disprove all this light load stuff in in trained folks and your results surprised you. Um, Would you say that that's kind of the, the one that comes to mind in terms of instances where your research has kind of totally changed your mind on something?
2: No. Well, when you say totally, uh, I, I mean, I'd say half of the studies we carried out that we carry out in our lab, I uh, refuted my own hypotheses. And uh, I mean, rested. there's just been a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a big example. In my book, uh, I, I'm not trying to plug it, but I'll plug it. Uh, so I have a book- hey, of, we, we spent for, like
0: 10 minutes plugging stuff at the beginning. Uh, the floor is yours.
2: I have a consumer book called The Max Muscle Plan. I published my first edition in 2010, I had an entire half of a chapter on nutrient timing talking about the benefits of how important nutrient timing is and going through what I had thought was pretty compelling research at the time, which shows it, when I look back, I realize how far I've comes. Uh, but I mean, some, you know, shortly after that, I started really delving deeply into the literature and We've published our group has published some of the seminal studies on this, including meta analyses, refuting that there's much uh, benefit. Now, I still will say there there probably is a mid, a mild benefit, and if you're a bodybuilder, it could have a very small effect. But it's it's certainly nowhere near as um, powerful a tool as I had, had thought. And, and there's been multiple times, so I I am constantly challenged. Uh, that to me, that's a good researcher. I think this is a very important point. A a true scientist is always skeptical, always curious, and always willing to change his or her opinion based on emerging evidence. Uh, I I think one of the real issues that I have on the internet with the quote-unquote many influencers is that they harden into an opinion, uh, and then they don't want to they they don't want to crawl out of that hole. Basically, Uh, you always need to be nuanced, I think, in your interpretation if you're a scientist. Now, there's some people that don't care; they're just they're bros, and they're all right. You want to? That's the, yeah, that's the game you want to play, okay? But uh, if you want to go down and claim that you're basing this on science, you need to be cautious in your interpretations. Like I said, I'm quite confident in the uh, in the repetitions, but most of the other ones you know, the questions you'll ask me, I probably I'm going to give much more cautious uh, answers when I say that because we just don't, particularly in the applied sciences, when there's when when you're talking about variables, when one variable will affect another variable, we just have, there's always different, re, so research is going to have different uh, conclusions in different studies and then try to piece out, well, why did this study show this and this one show this? And sometimes you don't even, you can't even uh, fathom why. it just chance. A lot of times it might be just chance finding. So I, I think it is really important to be uh, skeptical Curious and like I said, uh, never dig in. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying you were wrong, and that is, in my opinion, the mark of a true scientist.
0: Yeah. Now, Brad, I am curious. This isn't. Uh, didn't plan to go into a deep dive into your psyche or your history, but when did you like? Were you always kind of a, a science enthusiast who is kind of chasing down research to inform your training, or was there a point in your lifting? career where you kind of flipped a switch and decided e- enough is enough. I need to find more reliable guidance here.
2: Great question. So I, uh, I grew up uh, the son of two doctors, me- medical doctors, uh, and my dad was a medical researcher for uh, quite a bit of period of time. So I was brought up with the scientific mindset and my father promoted that. And then I kind of got away from that because when I started my bodybuilding venture, I deferred to the bodybuilding magazines at the time. So yeah, I, was, I would do the routines of my favorite bodybuilders. And even worse, I'd say, all right, I like this person's legs, so I'm going to do their leg routine. And I like that guy's arm, so I'm going to do his arm routine. And uh, I made some gains at the beginning, but I fairly quickly plateaued with that. And that's when uh, I started to say, you know what, there needs to be a better way. But I mean, you've been around a while now, Eric, or pretty long learn not so much but um uh back when uh you go back in the late 90s early 2000s it was just not much uh research on hypertrophy hypertrophy was always kind of the bastard child of strength and conditioning research they cared about performance and when i was a personal trainer so i was a personal trainer for many years before i my other life before i became a researcher i trained the general public and, and i then started Training a lot of uh, bodybuilders, but when you train the general public, I can count on one hand how many times someone would come in and say, "You know what? I want to take a, a second off of my sprint time, or I want to, I want to add, I want to add an inch to my jump height." Uh, they came in saying, "I want to get jacked or more jacked, and I want to lose body fat." And uh, and they weren't. Most of the research wasn't really geared towards that, so uh, it was kind of frustrating because when I started going down, most most of what we were looking at, or what I was looking at was research that looked at like a hormone hypothesis and was inferring that to hypertrophy, which as we know now, doesn't really pan out. So uh, I will say that I started uh, probably late 90s is when I started getting into the science uh, as I became a, started competing as a bodybuilder and starting to want to take my physique to the next level. And then it was just more, I started once I went down that rabbit hole, I I really took the deep dive. Yeah.
0: You know, it's really funny that, you know, you mentioned uh, back in the day in the strength and conditioning world, people weren't really focusing and prioritizing hypertrophy, but it's, it's really like younger folks listening to this won't even believe it, but it took a while to convince football, college football teams that they should have a strength and conditioning coach who does yeah. resistance training. I mean- that really didn't start picking up until surprisingly recently. And then in other sports, they were decades slower, where you had to you had to work really hard in the 1980s, 1990s even in some cases, to convince a track coach, your track athletes, your sprinters will not get worse from lifting weights and growing muscle. So it's not just that they weren't prioritizing it. They were almost demonizing hypertrophy in the kind of strength and conditioning world because everyone thought if our lifter or if our athletes build any muscle they're going to get bulky they're going to get slow they're going to have no range of motion and man the way that that industry has changed in the last 30 40 years is just unbelievable where i mean lifting weights is like the cornerstone of the strength and conditioning program so yeah it's it's crazy to see how that industry has changed and then in parallel I, I'm would imagine there's some kind of bi-directional causation there but as that industry has changed also the research has changed and now we've got folks like you who can say yeah i mean there's enough questions about hypertrophy unanswered that i can spend a whole career as a scientist kind of turning these rocks over and exploring it so
2: i i would say just to add to that one of the reasons i think my research became so popular is because i was a practitioner for all these years and I would go. I would say, you know, what, why is I when I started going to the literature? I said, well, why is there a study on this? Like I automatically assumed that when I started my journey into going into the research, that I'd have my answers for me, and I'd be like, there's not no studies have I ever been carried out on this and this. And I said, you know, this is what people care about, and they're not studying things that are really relevant. So when I came into the field, I was I was a kid in the candy store because I had all these opportunities. There was very little research on what I was interested in. And I I do think, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but I do think that my research started to uh, appeal to a lot of people and then promoted others to want to carry out similar research. So I think it turned on a light switch with a lot of people and said, well, yeah, why aren't there a lot of studies? And now I will say this, since I've come into the field circa 2010 is when I went into academia, uh, we've had an explosion of hypertrophy research. You just look at the Look at the difference between the hypertrophy research pre-2010 and now. I mean, and it is it's stark.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that you, you should be patting yourself on the back because I, I started getting really into fitness research right around the time that, right around that 2010-ish uh, time range or, or time frame. And yeah, like your reputation uh, as it was kind of observed from the outside, you know, looking in was you know brad schoenfeld his research answers the questions you've been wondering about but that no one else has looked into somehow um and yeah you you kind of i mean you took the field i mean you just tore through it i mean took it took it by storm and uh just kind of tore through this like really rapid kind of clip of studies that were so practical and and answered all these questions that lifters and, and practitioners had been wondering about for so long so um I definitely think you inspired um, more than a few of this kind of new wave of of hypertrophy researchers. I mean, Lauren, you you jumped in uh, to Brad's lab. What what uh, was there a specific line of research that kind of inspired you to uh, to reach out and, and jump in there?
1: Yeah, one thing I think you've always done really well, Brad, is not only do the research but also prioritize good science communication and explaining things in a way that is understandable to the personal trainer, which you know, I was at the time what when I when I first reached out to Brad. And so I, you know, I know you mentioned earlier that the social media influencers are often not open-minded enough or perhaps not willing to to change their minds because they've kind of locked themselves into a particular way of thinking or a particular type of, of programming. Um, or diet or, you know, whatever the case may be. But do you think there are ways that that we can do better as, as scientists and as science communicators to kind of bridge the gap between the, the lab and the gym, if you will?
2: Well, I think you guys are doing a terrific job. Um, I, and I think it's changing for the better, too. Um, again, when I came in, there was really an ivory tower Mentality to many, if not most, resistance uh, resistance training researchers, uh, where there just wasn't much going on in social media. So yeah, I, I was like, well, we need to keeping this within the scientific community is not not going to promote better personal trainers and 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 really reach our our target audience, which is the general public. Uh, so yeah, if you just want to promote to strength coaches and have your researchers communicate. I thought that was a misguided way. And I, I think now with Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, and, and certainly Instagram, uh, we now have uh, a medium that I think is being more and more accepted. And your mentor, certainly uh, Dr. Phillips, Stu Phillips is, is really terrific with that. But having research reviews like Mass and others, uh, I think is really critical as well. So I think now we're starting to do a much better job of getting the scientific information out to the masses. But look, we still have a long ways to go. uh, Look, Liver King still has 3 million followers on Instagram or whatever. So, And I don't have anyone near that. So uh, I think that uh, speaks to where the the gap that still exists between what, as a young person I mentioned earlier, coming up in bodybuilding, uh, I deferred to bodybuilders and and the uh, appearance still makes a big has a big effect on people's psyches in terms of what they want to believe and and who they believe.
0: Yeah. I'm still waiting for like, I assume it'll happen where there will be someone who's like, you know, just like a huge, absolutely massive kind of like Instagram or YouTube fitness influencer who goes ahead and does a PhD and gets more people into some of that research. I'm expecting that'll happen because it, it's I mean, there's still there's already plenty of folks with very big followings who have, you know, tremendous physiques who do research in the in the area. Um, but yeah, I'm still waiting for that one person who has just like four million followers and like a world class physique to be like, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and get into this research stuff. That that would be I think a big step. And uh I would volunteer to build that physique and the following, but I don't know. I don't know if it's in the cards for me. We'll have to see. Um All right, I want to dive into the chat here. We do these live for a reason. We want to make sure that we're uh, giving a shout-out to the folks who are with us in the trenches here. Someone gave a a little shout-out to Trex Nation, the Trex Army. I appreciate that. A lot of love for Brad in the chat, as always. Dr. Helms made an appearance in the chat. Always good to see Dr. Helms. Uh, Probably keeping an eye on us, making sure we're not making any jokes at his expense. We've we've been known to do that from time to time. Um, We did have a question... um, so Brad, a question in the chat is about effective reps. Um, are you familiar with the term of like the effect, effective reps model? Basically, uh, the my loose kind of understanding of it is that people argue that the reps that really count are the hard ones at the end of the set. And that it's, I think the, the number I've seen thrown around is like, it's the last five reps, those really hard ones that really make the difference. And basically, you know, those hard reps are the ones that you should be counting and anchoring on when you're determining how much kind of effective volume you're really doing in a program. Um, How do you feel about that concept in general? Do you think there's any merit to it? Um, Or or do you think, uh, you know, going with just kind of a true volume load calculation is a a more simplistic and suitably effective way to to quantify volume?
2: I think it's an over... So I think it has some merit, but I think it's an oversimplified uh, construct and, and look. I, I people like simplification, so yeah. when you sell them on effect, all you got to do is the last five reps, and it speaks to people. And that, like an influencer, can go on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and and just give that you know make a case for that. You can uh, provide a logical rationale for it that sounds good to to the majority of people who don't delve into science, and uh, and they run with it. I again, I think it's oversimplified for a number of reasons. Number one. Why five? Why not four? Why not three? Why not six? Why not say where? Where do we get five? Like there's, that's not based on any evidence. So again, that's based on someone coming up, whoever it was, with a, with an idea, which is fine. You know, you you can have a hypothesis, but to really have confidence, you want to test the hypothesis that's not been tested. Number two, um, there's been evidence that you do not need to train to failure. Some of it is our. We've done meta analyses on it. I've been involved in some of these studies. There's other evidence coming out I'm aware of, uh, again, which refutes the need to train the full failure. So if that's the case, then do you really need those last two reps? Maybe maybe it's just the three to five reps that matter. Yeah. So the last five don't matter, just the, the three, two to four, and five reps, which again would be kind of silly. And there's a recent um, regression analysis uh, by Zach Robbins out of uh, Dr. Zordos' lab, actually, which has been a preprint. It's certainly not published yet. But it does show that it, in the regression, you see that there's still hypertrophy being generated with lower reps, uh, with, with the reps further away from failure, if you will. So six, seven, eight, or, you know, going way past that. We have other evidence where there's hypertrophy. Uh, I've been involved in it and stopping way short of failure. Now, those untrained subjects you could say, all right, uh, I do think, as you start getting more and more well trained, uh, certainly there's there's something to the uh, the uh, construct that if you don't train hard, you're not gonna gain. so yeah, if you're where I am or you're, any of you guys are and anyone who's trained uh, for long periods of time, you're not just gonna train at sixty percent of effort, you know let's say an r a r of six and uh, and make great gains. so you need to train hard, but to say that the other reps aren't counting again is not has not been shown in the the literature and i think there's evidence to uh to refute that
0: yeah yeah i mean i, I see things like like that kind of concept of effective reps and then, then there's kind of a loosely associated concept um some fo- folks might uh balk at the idea of me suggesting that they're loosely related but some folks talk about quantifying their um their training volume using something like hard sets instead of just number of sets and um, i think ultimately what people are getting at with these heuristics is uh adequate training volume plus adequate proximity to failure and it sounds like you know you're you're in the camp um which i agree with which is that you know you certainly don't need to take all your sets to failure and in many cases you don't have to take really all that many of them to failure um, so For someone who's kind of an intermediate to advanced lifter, what kind of guidance do you typically give for, uh, proximity to failure for hypertrophy? And, and, you know, let's just kind of make it easy and frame it as reps in reserve. How, how many reps should people be leaving in the tank for the majority of their training? Would you say?
2: Yeah, great question. So this is again, nuance where I'm giving an opinion because the literature here is just not, there's, it's equivocal. Yeah. Um, yeah and I think there's a lot of holes in the way. If you actually look, we did a meta analysis on this. Um, I, I can go through some of this. St- I don't think we have time, but I mean, there's not been studies in very well-trained subjects. And I would, again, hypothesize that as you get more and more well-trained, you might need to go to failure more occasionally than not. Um, there's older individuals don't recover as well. You might not want to go to failure as much if you're getting on in years. Um, the type of exercise you're using. If you're taking a set of squats to failure, it has a much greater or much bigger difference than if you're taking a set of leg extensions to failure or or abduction, you know, cable abductor abduction exercise. I've never seen anyone get crushed by taking a set of cable abduction exercise to failure, take uh, squats to failure. So these are all, again, nuances, but on a general level, I would say an RAR of two to three. And I do think that having... Selective use of failure may, although it's not shown in the literature, I still think it's not going to hurt you in general. Maybe the last set to failure on at least some of the exercises is probably a good idea. It's not going to hurt you again. I always look at cost benefit when I'm giving practical recommendations. Uh, So I think there's not, the literature is never going to tell you what to do. It's going to give you certain guidelines. There's always going to be gaps within the literature. And then we have to use our personal expertise. In context with the individual that we're working with and their needs and goals, to to draw practical inferences. And I, I generally would say for most people, particularly body bodybuilders or people that want to maximize uh, their genetic hypertrophic potential, that taking a set or two to, to failure within a uh, a workout probably is is a good idea, and it certainly is not going to hurt you. And, and I also mentioned as you get older, I think you have to be more cognizant of. Being more judicious with the use of failure because recovery is uh, is negatively impacted.
0: Yeah. Now I have one more question that's kind of loosely related to this, and I will uh, compliment myself. I have the self awareness to recognize that Lauren, I have hijacked this episode. I apologize. When I get Brad's ear, Brad, we've hung out at conferences. I just hit you with questions. You have knowledge. I want it. Okay. So. I'm going to practice some self-restraint. I'll ask my, my next question here. And then, Lauren, uh, if you want to scour the outline for something that uh, that excites you, I'm going to hand over the wheel and step away. Uh, but, Brad, we got multiple questions about what I, I, I've heard them called uh, like intensification techniques. So things like drop sets, super sets, cluster sets, rest-pause sets, some of these things that um, in some cases might even help you go maybe a little bit beyond failure uh, in terms of where you would have reached failure in a, a traditional set. And so this is an area where um, as a practitioner, I'm open to using these things, but but I do have to wrestle with the concept of, you know, it, if I'm starting out saying like, yeah, for an intermediate uh, lifter, most of our sets, we can leave a, a rep or a couple reps in the tank and we'll still make totally adequate gains. Then you start putting in some of these other strategies that, you know, the purported benefit is that we're pushing beyond failure. Um, It's an interesting kind of apparent contradiction there. Um, But nonetheless, I I do use some of these things as a coach because in many cases, they're a time saver or they're something that, um, frankly, my clients just enjoy doing and there's no harm to it if we incorporate it sensibly. But a very long question, but I guess what, what do you see as the role of these different types of strategies? Are there any of these strategies that you favor and kind of how do you um, how do you assess them? Do you think they're worth pursuing or do you think they're just uh, made to fill the pages of bodybuilding magazines?
2: So I'll start off by saying that we don't have a lot of evidence on most of the intensification techniques, which is kind of interesting too. You'd think that we'd have a ton of evidence on it. We don't. Um, the most, the the one that has I, I think the most potential efficacy is accentuated overload, uh, ex- accentuated eccentric overload, uh, which is basically super maximal eccentric glyphs. And there's uh, some decent evidence, particularly they use flywheels. There's different ways they implement it, where that might have a uh, an additive effect on hypertrophy. How that can be implemented? Well, there's many different ways you can do that. And certainly I don't think these are things you want to utilize like on all your sets and just be, you know, have entire workouts structured around eccentric overload, but selective, selectively using that, and that's where the art of training comes in. And that would be specific to the individual and in the context of the program you're you're implementing. Um other techniques. So drop sets, you mentioned, there's only, we did a meta analysis on this. There's been five studies and I don't, this was a year or so ago. I don't recall another one being done since Uh, five controlled studies that met our inclusion criteria and didn't show any benefit to it, didn't show a detriment to it. And it did show that in the context of how the research was applied or, or the protocols were carried out, that there wasn't a negative effect and it actually saved time. But that's part of the problem with trying to infer from these types of studies is that they were trying to balance comparing traditional training to drop sets when you might want to incorporate drop sets the way I would think it's probably more suited is like on your last set to maybe have greater volume where you're doing an intensification either to create the beyond failure approach or just more add more volume to the session without adding a lot of more time to your session so minimizing the time commitment. We don't have uh, research on that. Uh, so I do think that there's potential for that. We're going to be carrying out, uh, shout out to my master's student, Ryan Burke, next semester he will be carrying out his master's thesis on, on um, paired set training, superset training, so agonist antagonist training. No, well, th- So there's been two studies that have been carried out Uh, In untrained subjects. We have no studies in resistance-trained subjects. Uh, At worst, we're thinking that it might be a good... uh, When I say it worst, I don't think it's probably going to enhance results, but I do think that it very well may provide similar results uh, and save that you can get your workout done in half the time, which would be a a big factor. So, yeah, I, I don't think that most of these intensification techniques have credence at least evidence, uh, controlled evidence to suggest that they are effective in the context of how they're studied. But I do think there's a lot more room for research on different ways to implement them that may be, uh, additive to traditional resistance training routines.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to see that study. Um, obviously it'll, it'll take some time. Research moves slow, but, uh, yeah. Agonist antagonist supersets are a huge, a huge favorite of mine, just because time's valuable. Sometimes you got to get in, and get stuff done, you know? Um, all right, Lauren, did you find something exciting that, that, or do you have a question that, that you want to throw to, to Brad?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think throughout this discussion, it's come up a couple of times. You said, uh, they mentioned whether the lifters were untrained or trained, and you know, mm-hmm. certainly, I don't have to tell you that that's one of the very commonly cited criticisms of the research. Is oh, those people weren't trained, or if they were, then they weren't trained enough. So I'd say, would you say you should be approaching how you apply the evidence in a different way if you're coaching untrained or or newer? lifters as opposed to advanced trainees? And the more advanced you get, do we start looking at the research differently or are we continuing to sort of go back to the, the same base of evidence? How would you apply those?
2: Yeah. So I'll give you my personal perspective here is that in untrained subjects, to me, the most important thing is just getting their technique down. So I think a lot of the whole stuff with evidence goes out the window to me. That you just want to teach movement patterns to mm-hmm. uh, to new lifters. You want to get them involved, and that can take several months to get them fully. Depending upon if you're using machines, that'll happen more quickly in general. And if you're using free weights, it can particularly more complex movements. It can take longer. Uh, so really, I think when we start talking the transition to being an intermediate is where the uh, where the research to me would come in and be more appropriate to start applying. Uh, if you're asking about whether to be selective in what research you're using, is that your question? Or on on untrained versus trained?
1: Uh, well, I'd say often people will look at at the literature and say, "Well, these people aren't as advanced as I am or as my client is." So you know, does that apply to me or? Should I, do I need to wait for research to come out in even more advanced lifters, or should I kind of depart from the literature and just focus on anecdote?
2: Yeah, I think you have to take it in the context of what, what is the purpose of the study. So certain, certain studies, I think, uh, with certain purposes would have much more relevance to using trained subjects if you're going to be generalizing to trained subjects. Versus others, so um, I'll give you a for instance. So um, we carried out a study on uh, the mind muscle connection in our lab shortly after you left. I think this uh, study came out. Where, um, and um, I had a choice of resistance trained or untrained. I chose to do it in an untrained subjects. Why? Because I can't get into the person's head to know if they are using a mind muscle connection or not. And when you have a trained subject. If it it's me and I go into this study and they're telling me, all right, I use a mind-muscle connection, they're going to say, just get the weight up. It's going to screw with my head. I'm I'm going to be using a mind-muscle connection subconsciously because that's the way I train. So it's a basic motor learning concept. You get in what's called a deep basin where you can't get out of that deep basin because you've just been so uh, programmed to think in a certain way. So we chose untrained subjects because they're a blank slate. And uh, and so then does that translate to, uh, to trained subjects? Well, I think certainly we can have more confidence. There's greater internal validity to that study. So you have greater, you can draw greater cause-effect uh, conclusions from that because you have greater confidence in the outcomes. So, and there's others uh, for other reasons why untrained subjects may not have any uh, difference between... Uh, trained subjects. Look, it didn't. In many cases, it doesn't matter anyway. I told you the the earlier the story with uh, with Stu and how uh, it's been shown in trained subjects, untrained subjects. But other, uh, there can be, uh, like I said, with going to failure. I think that that that's where I think uh, having it in trained subjects is pretty much a big deal. Uh, I think the need to go to failure very well could and probably does differ. With untrained versus trained subjects. So, uh, but again, those hypotheses need to be tested. And I, I do think that uh, y- you need to use your judgment. You need to look at the, I think another thing that people don't do enough is to use critical thinking skills, which I get on a soapbox and say to me, that's a that's something that needs to be taught very early on in school because there is a lack of critical thinking in general, uh, certainly in, in the United States, in my humble opinion. Um, but use your critical thinking skills to look at what the topic is, the purpose of the study, and certainly don't just dismiss a study uh, because it's an untrained subject. So I I know that's done very often, and it's uh, misguided.
1: I know you mentioned that you have several studies coming up. Eric and I got this question a couple weeks back, and I'd like to ask it of you. Um, If you had the ability to carry out a study that you know, no no expense issues, no resource issues. You can answer whatever question you want, uh, and we're all going to be there to help you out. You can use any outcome measures available. What are you doing?
0: And I think you said we're relaxing ethics as well. Is that right?
1: <laughs> or do they... Do... Yeah, let's go for that. Like,
0: like if you just answer any question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um
2: well, I'm probably taking uh, the IFB, the uh, current Olympia lineup, to a desert island, putting them in uh, in their own houses where we can monitor their sleep patterns, their training patterns, and and look at all the the cornucopia variables uh, over time. But obviously, that's not happening. But you know, seriousness, one thing that I really would like to do, and I've uh, this just is not if you're going to relax ethics, I'd like to do a study that in where you can inject lactate. So you would have people train with very low repetitions, um, two, three reps. So you're not getting virtually any metabolic stress. We're getting very minimal metabolic stress and you inject various, so lact, for instance, lactate into the directly into the muscle, uh, during the training. So you're not just into the blood. They've had uh, blood studies where they wouldn't do, uh, you know, circulatory injection, which does not necessarily mimic what happens when you're training. So that, to me, is really not answering the question. I have uh, spoken to Dr. Mike Roberts, I know you're familiar with Dr. Mike, about trying to do this in uh, in rodents, where I have a, an idea to kind of mimic that. But rodents, there are issues with extrapolating data to ro- from rodents to humans. So that, to me, I think, to get mechanistically, I think that would be going forward to to help answer those types of questions. But but again, you don't get approval in humans to doing that type of work, or, or it would be very difficult. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think Eric and I have talked uh, pretty extensively about interesting mechanisms versus practical and, and translatable findings. And while something might be really interesting from a, from a mechanistic perspective or even from a kind of proof of concept like molecular study that doesn't necessarily translate in the long term and I know a lot of the research that you know you do at Lehman is uh, it's more applied and, and more you know directly translatable but um, given you know your interests and where you started that you certainly come from a, a position of, of interest in the, in the mechanistic side and in the molecular side. So do you think that there, there's a value to understanding both when you think about somebody who's interpreting research as a trainer or as a lifter, or do you think there needs to be more of a separation in terms of, oh, well, even if this were true, it wouldn't change the way that we lift or the way that we coach others? Or is it still helpful to know why we're doing this or what is the underlying mechanism or potential mechanism?
2: Yeah. So I, I do think, so let's say we would know, but hypothetically that metabolic stress was a, uh, was a driver of hypertrophy. That could change, that to me would change or potentially change practical recommendations. I would say, yeah, you definitely want to include some pump training in. So, uh, let's say we find out, I, again, I think muscle damage, again, very equivocal whether it is a factor or not, there's some evidence it has benefits, some evidence it doesn't, uh, at least mild to moderate. Certainly, extensive damage is detrimental. But um, but let's say we would find that it does well. Maybe you'd want to do more e training. Maybe you'd want to vary your exercise selection more uh, to provide more of a novel stimulus so you can uh, induce more, uh, at least a moderate. Mono- Moderate amount of damage. So again, these are things that I think having insights into mechanisms and other mechanisms. If um, I, I've been collaborating with a group in uh, Granada, Spain, uh, for the past number of years, where we look at the effects of hypoxia, acute hypoxia, on muscle development, it's really interesting. So Granada, Spain, for those who don't know, is um, is at sea level, but they are they're abutting the Sierra Nevada mountains which in 40 minutes, you can be 2,500 meters up in a mountain to have this huge training center, Olympic training center there. And you know, I've been out there and we take the uh, subjects up by bus to the top of the mountain and they train in this environment. Then they come back. So they're living at sea level and they're training in this hypoxic environment. And we found some fairly interesting uh, insights that maybe there is some effects of hypoxia on muscle development uh, again equivocal these are this is where uh, research is never clean in the or almost never clean except with repetition that I've heard to be but outside of that you just get some equivocal results that you try to piece together but bottom line is my my point here is that understanding these mechanisms potentially will change how you would program
0: yeah for sure Awesome. Well, you know, Brad, we're we're kind of running up on time here. Lauren, were you on the edge of your seat with the next question? Did you have one ready to go? Or if you have
1: time to... for, for one more, I'll go back to a, a programming question. Are, are you okay for a couple of minutes, Brad? Sure. Awesome. Uh, so this is from a listener asking how much does exercise order affect hypertrophy? And I mean, more specifically asking, you know, if you're going to do one exercise that's, that's working multiple muscle groups and follow that up with another exercise that works one of those same muscle groups, you know, how concerned do we need to be about exercise order when it comes to hypertrophy?
2: Yeah, so the research really does not show much of an effect of exercise order. I, I think So this is where there could be some nuance if you're going to spend more than like an hour or so in the gym. I think that the exercise you're doing, starting to do, let's say at at the hour and a half mark, you're going to have less focus and and less drive to be doing them, particularly if you're efficient in your training. But I think in general, in, in fairly efficient, let's say one hour type workouts, that it's just not going to be much, if any, of a factor.
0: Yeah, because I've heard some folks who will say, for example, you know, Brad, we used to train out of the bodybuilding magazines. You've done the back and bicep days, you know what I mean? And I've heard folks who say, you know, my arms are kind of lagging, so I'm going to do biceps before back instead of after, or I'm going to do my triceps before chest instead of after. So it it sounds like you're not not really sold on that, uh,
2: I, I would say that that wouldn't hurt. And that if you're going to have a longer workout, yeah, you'd want to prioritize. I don't think it hurts to prioritize your muscles. So generally, I do think that is a a sound strategy. So again, cost benefit wise, but I do also on the other side of the coin, I think if you're having a fairly efficient workout in terms of time, that it probably is not going to make much difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so very, very quick question here before we close out the episode. Um, because Brad, I know that, that you and I, and presumably Lauren, you know, we started out in this whole weird exercise science, fitness research world because we like fitness. We're fitness enthusiasts. We love doing it. Maybe we coach people. Um, and then all three of us made that step where we decided I want to, instead of reading the research, I want to get into this. I want to start actually doing this research. What advice do you have for people who want to take that next step and actually get into doing research.
2: So I would, uh, hold up Lauren as a shining example. So if you're not involved in a university program, so ultimately, if you really want to delve into it, you should be getting yourself into a master's level program at least. Uh, but Lauren came to me, uh, without any, uh, she, she was not affiliated with any university and said, can I volunteer in your lab? So Get involved, really, the best way. So, well, here's what I will say. And, and by the way, our, our lab, uh, since Lauren, Lauren, I think was the first volunteer, non student volunteer we've had, but I've had quite a number of them now. Um, I, I would say that uh, you do not, most people generally are not going to understand research until they actually become a part of research. You can read research. I, I read a ton of research before until I actually started carrying it out. There are certain nuances that you un- that you understand when you get involved and you can't understand when you're not so there's a lot of people who are armchair researchers and look I not it sounds disparaging but they, it is what it is but I would say that their opinions are not uh, as valid as those who are in research because they've not th- there's a lack of understanding as to what goes on in a study and I I'm sure both of you can, attest to that, that uh, you just, you learn a lot when you actually carry out, you start understanding things that go wrong and, and the planning that's involved and, and all the nuances that you, you need to deal with, how subjects act and dropouts and, and things like that. So until you're really involved, uh, I think it really is a a learning experience uh, that if you want to be involved in research, volunteering is uh, is paramount.
0: Yeah. Well, Brad, we've had such a a lovely, friendly episode. I hate to end it on a note of disagreement, but you missed the important first step. For someone who wants to get involved in research, before they do all that stuff, they need to go get this book right here. (laughs) Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy by Brad Schoenfeld. This thing, like I said, it sits on... I've got a two-bookshelf system. The ones behind me are all like religion, philosophy, and history. But over in the corner of my eye, that's where all the science happens. That's where I keep the physiology, the statistics. Boom. Yeah. See, everyone who's anybody has this book. Oh, are you still going with the first edition there?
1: I do. I have the
2: first
0: edition. No, you got to get the second.
2: I will send you an update with first. (laughs) (laughs) That's Oh, man. Well, Brad,
0: uh, we so greatly appreciate you coming on the show. It has been a delight You are absolutely genuinely one of the top minds in this space. So, thank you so much for donating an hour to us and our audience. Uh, We've greatly enjoyed it. Everyone, be sure to support Brad. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. Like I said, his textbook is fantastic. Um, His um, other book uh, that you mentioned previously um, remind me of the title it's like The Max Muscle Muscle Plan.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, That's
2: a consumer book.
0: Yeah. So, you're
2: writing. Probably wants to go with the textbook.
0: Yeah, the, the textbook, um, is it's just gold. Uh, so I, I highly recommend checking out Brad's work, his research, his books. Um, if you're looking to do uh, some research, check out his lab um, and, and his master's program over at Lehman University as well. And uh, if you like what we're doing on the mass side of things, like I said, uh, check out massresearchreview.com like rate subscribe review uh all the stuff we're doing here and if you want to take advantage of our black friday sale prices are already dropped they're going to stay dropped until wednesday november 29th uh you can subscribe over at massresearchreview.com so uh everyone in the chat thanks so much for joining us um obviously you know it's uh in the states here thanksgiving is in four hours so i know a lot of folks are traveling so uh if you made the time for us tonight uh, thank you so much for joining us. This uh, whole Office Hours concept works because of the heroes who are in the chat live every week. So thanks so much for joining us. If you are celebrating Thanksgiving, uh, we hope that you very much enjoy it. Safe travels. And we will be back with another episode of Office Hours in exactly one week. Brad, once again, thank you so much.